Welcome in. It is another episode of Heat Check. We are recording this on Monday night, January 18th. Uh, We just got done watching Kansas and Baylor play. We're going to talk about that game. And then speaking of Blue Bloods, we will speak of the other three Blue Bloods or the other three most notable Blue Bloods, I guess, um, and the ones that are struggling. We got to define that. Blue Bloods is such a relative term to me. Is it Kentucky, Duke, North Carolina, and Kansas? Is it teams that win national? I don't know. So we're going to have to get to the bottom of that. But yeah. I think we have varying opinions. And for that, I think uh, we'll dive into it a little later. But we're going to, we, we got a lot of stuff to talk about on this episode. Um, but let's start with Kansas and Baylor. Um, Baylor wins 77 69. They moved to 13 and 0. They are. 6-0 in Big 12 play, I believe. Um, Kansas is 4-3. and So the Big 12 championship regular season hopes for Kansas are all but gone unless uh, barring, barring an undefeated run through the rest of the conference play and some major falling apart from Baylor or Texas. Um, it's not going to happen. But my takeaway from this game is that Baylor is the best team in the country. What do you say to that? See, I, I understand why you say that. I think both Gonzaga and Baylor, if we're going to nitpick, have Achilles heels. We'll talk a little bit about why I think Baylor's defense um, is kind of like, you know, a turtle where, yeah, if you just look at it as a, a turtle, you can't really get through its shell. Cool, I get it. But then when you, like, flip that turtle over, there's a soft underbelly. I think that's kind of like what Baylor's defense is, and it's a really good defense, but it's a little bit limited, and we can talk about that. I think it can be flanks, um, and that I think it's a weakness for Baylor, and also the fact that they don't have that ethereal NBA takeover talent, but also Jared Butler can be that at times, which is a point you made to me. I said when we were talking about this before the show, I was like, Okay, but Gonzaga has Jalen Suggs. And if they need a guy to just be the best basketball player on the floor, it's going to be Jalen Suggs. And what you said to me is that in college, that can be Jared Butler. And I think that's true, and we saw that tonight, right? Yeah. Uh, As he drops 30 and was phenomenal against Kansas and made every shot he took. Um, But for Gonzaga, I think they're a little bit thin. They're thinner than I thought they were earlier. They've only got about seven guys, seven and a half guys that I trust which can be a problem in March uh, if a guy like Drew Timmy fouls out, especially in the front court. If you have foul trouble, that could be an issue. Um, and that's how Gonzaga gets beat. And they're not an elite, uh, elite defensive team, whereas Baylor is an elite two-way team. So I see the argument. I still think it's Gonzaga, though, just because kind of like LSU's offense uh, a year ago in football, I just think their offense is too overpowering and it masks up all of their other flaws. Well, here's the thing with with that logic, I don't necessarily agree um, in the fact that Baylor is the best defense in the country. Um, they, like you mentioned with Gonzaga, Gonzaga is thinner than we believed. And a lot of that is just that in non-conference play, a lot of times teams are figuring out their rotations and Gonzaga was able to figure out their rotation and still win games, um, which was very like, elite NBA team like um, in that 
and what we're seeing that with like a with like a, a team like the Lakers where they're figuring out with different free agents and stuff and, and still experimenting with lineups and, and it's working. And the lineup I would say is is kind of getting whittled down and they're playing seven, eight guys. And so I don't think that it's out of the realm of possibility that we get to an NCAA tournament game and a team like Baylor, which their best defenders are perimeter defenders, which is what you need um, against Gonzaga. Can, very switchable. Yeah, and very switchable. And and that's the recipe, I would say, for slowing down IIE, Kispert, and Suggs. And yeah. I've mentioned this. I'm, I don't understand why more people in the country are not talking about this, that Kispert and Suggs are above average three-point shooters. Yes, we know that. The rest of the Gonzaga team is not. And yeah. if the rest of the team is, is, shooting its, is shooting their season averages and you get an off night from Suggs, or Kispert, or both, that could be catastrophic for them. I don't think that Gonzaga is going to lose to some 9-10 seed probably. Um, although the fact that a team like and, – and you're going to say that they're just complacent and whatever it is, and, and that's why teams in their conference hang around with them, that's probably true. But we've – there's plenty of examples of this happening where Gonzaga dominates um, its conference. They play well in their non-conference in, in um, early season play. And then they get to the NCAA tournament and something weird happens. Um, I don't think that's out of their own possibility. I don't think it's out of their own possibility that Baylor goes undefeated in the big 12, even though that league is so good. And I don't think it's a large percentage chance. Like I would say sub 5%, but I do think it's possible. And with that all being said, I'm not overreacting to, and I think that you would agree with this. I'm not overreacting to Gonzaga beating Kansas because in our heat check polls this week, I had Gonzaga or I had Baylor, Baylor over Gonzaga already. So like, I I just think that they're the perfect matchup. And if you, if you're going to say that Gonzaga's offense is good enough to overwhelm people, then I would think you would be higher on Iowa too, because I understand that their defenses are different. But yeah. Gonzaga allows teams to score on them with somewhat I mean, relative ease. But I've also seen Gonzaga be able to button it up a little bit more whenever they're competing against a better team, right? Um, I mean, we're also talking about them kind of like sleepwalking through conference play. Their closest conference game has been a 14-point win. So I don't know if that's them not – winning every game by 40 like they may be capable of sure but i don't know i i see what you're saying and i you value defense a little bit more highly than i do right we've also seen mark few teams become susceptible in the postseason to some of the trappings of being these offensively oriented teams although i will say also some of his teams as of late have been better defensively um when you think of the brandon clark team um, the DeMontis Sabonis team um, a couple years ago. That said, I, I just, again, when it comes down to it, I'll take Kispert and Suggs over Jared Butler and Davion Mitchell or Macy Oteague. Like uh, the top four wing guard guys, if you're going to go Nemhard Ayayi, um, who, again, I just think Ayayi is one of the most underrated players nationally. What he can do, he could, on a lot of teams, if he was a primary outlet, I think he's a guy who would be hovering around the the 16, 7, and 7 mark. 
Like, this guy could get triple-doubles in college. I like their top four perimeter guys, I think, over Baylor's. And that's kind of where I come to a conclusion here. And then, of course, you know, Timmy is Timmy. The one area where you would say, okay, Baylor could win that game is they could physically overpower them with the front court guys with Vital. Um, and, and that could be a problem if they saw each other head to head. We were supposed to see it head to head, and it's a shame we didn't, right? Well, but yeah. I, I mean, some people are saying it's better for the sport that we might just wait and see it in a national championship game. Sure. I don't – because – I guess the fear would be that Gonzaga could have just beat this Baylor team and we would know it's a Gonzaga against the field situation. And maybe we get some crazy, crazy scenario where these two teams have so few wins or so few losses and they play in the national championship game. Um, I, I do think it's more than clear that there's two teams in a top tier and then a pretty substantial drop off to number three and three through seven with the Texas and the Iowa's and the Michigan's Villanova. Um, who am I forgetting? Tennessee. Um, yeah. If you think that they are that, good. maybe, maybe, you know, don't want to get ahead of myself, but the way Alabama's playing recently, I know yeah. that's a team that had some pretty disgraceful losses in their non-conference, but yeah, I mean, if we want to talk about who's playing at an elite level right now, maybe Michigan. Yeah, and so l- l- let's talk a little bit more about the Kansas and Baylor game specifically tonight sure. and what we saw because yeah. we texted about it frequently. Um, there were some things that I thought were relatively frustrating um, from the perspective of Bill Self's squad. Um most of the usual suspects were doing the usual uh, suspect <laughs> behavior, I would yeah. say. Um, but let's talk about we, – we were talking about Baylor. Let's continue to talk about Baylor. What do you think it was, uh, other than Jared Butler going uh, over 75% from three and scoring 30 points, yeah. one, one off of his career high? That it, is that simply what it was? No, it wasn't. I, Butler jumped him. And if you take away the run at the beginning of the game, the game Kansas wins, right? Like it, it was – Baylor jumps out to the huge lead in the first five minutes, and you can't ignore the first five minutes because they happened. Um, but without that, we're looking at a different kind of game. That said, um, felt like Baylor made every three that they took throughout the course of this game. Made like every single one. They didn't run a ton of set offense. I mean, Jay Billis even made the point that Kansas was staying in the game because Baylor was not running a lot of sets and they were just kind of getting threes and a lot of them went down and they won um, and were able to do enough defensively. But uh, I would also say that if Kansas pushes their offense more through Christian Brown and gets the ball to Ochai Akbaji more, and maybe like the sides early on. And this is something that I said to you preseason when we were trying to figure out what the rotation was going to look like. And I was just like, I don't need to see any more David McCormick. And you're like, give him a chance. What I said to you is why not just make Lightfoot your center? And we, I think that's what they need to do. I think Lightfoot should play. I don't think David McCormick should. And the only other guys who play are wings and uh, guards. That's my personal opinion. 
I just think McCormick makes too many bad decisions and hurts spacing too much to be out there. Um, and, and that's a little harsh on it. He's a senior. And he's a good player. That's the scary thing is that he can come back next year. And that's it's like, it's one of the it's biggest. It's a real Jared Orantano situation. It, yeah. It's like, it's like, I don't want to say that this is going to happen. I don't want to speculate, but David McCormick getting pushed out. Um, I don't know if they have better options. Uh, maybe they do. Zach. That's good, man. Like, like they, they have, they have a center coming in. That's a, that's a top 50 recruit in the ESPN. I can't remember or don't want to butcher his name. I know it's, I think it's Zach Clements or Clarence, but he's, he's a lanky center and he's a shooter. Um, and I don't want to like speculate and say David McCormick's going to get pushed out or whatever, but it would not shock me at all if McCormick ended up leaving and just took 15 to 20 shots a game on some like mid-major team. But, but let's continue to talk. I don't, I completely agree with you. Ochai needs to shoot more. Christian Brown needs to shoot more. When you are four for four from three, you should have the absolute greenest of lights. And the saddest thing is that I know that Bill Self has given Christian Brown a green light and that sometimes I just don't think he hunts his shots enough. And there's, it's, it's fun. It's oddly, it's oddly as someone who covered him in high school, he went to the same high school as I did. It is oddly similar to what happened in, in, um, at his, in his time at Blue Valley Northwest, because he played mostly or starred on the JV team as, as a sophomore. And in his junior season, which was my senior year of high school, BBNW went four and four, their first eight games. Mm-hmm. CB was kind of like, everybody knew he was good, but he was not playing the point guard position. They were giving the, the ball to other people. And eventually they were just like, we have to run the offense through CB and he has to be our first or second option scoring and distributing. He's a much better decision maker with the passing than Marcus Garrett is. And if Dewan Harris is not the point guard, um, because I think I really trust Dewan Harris and I think he makes great decisions. I honestly think that CB has to run point because Marcus Garrett is not like that experiment has run its course. It was very poor yeah. tonight, and it did not look like he even got on the on the private jet two weeks ago. What? Yeah, it's surprising. And also, may I chime in and just contribute? I think with Lightfoot, you have a, a viable pick and roll partner, which could really help Marcus Garrett get back on track. And okay, continue. That is the. The, I will agree with you, and I've talked to other people who have watched plenty of Kansas basketball over the last decade plus, um, that Mitch Lightfoot, for all his deficiencies, does not do dumb things in the way that David McCormick does. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't lose his footing on offense. He doesn't turn the ball over more than he makes shots. Like, McCormick at halftime had three turnovers and three shots and three turnovers and two points and I two fouls. and two fouls. And I think that the, he got a bad whistle. Like that was not a charge at the start of the second half. And John Higgins is sometimes just a complete joke of an official, but he doesn't do himself any favors. And so for that, I said early in the season, I think you had to keep rolling with him because the depth is not great behind him and he obviously has to play just because their minutes have to go to someone and it's not going to Jethro Muscadin. But at the end of the day, Mitch Lightfoot 
maybe elevates the floor. He might lower the ceiling. He, he elevates the floor. And the problem in this game for Kansas, before we get over with this, and I have a couple of overarching questions for these two teams as we get into the right. later stages of conference play, the problem in this game, like you mentioned, Baylor wins the first five minutes and 30 seconds, 16 to five. Kansas wins the rest of the game, 64 to 61. They get it to 56-51 in the second half, and then KU goes to a lineup of Dewan Harris, Marcus Garrett, Ochai, Tristan Enaruna, and Mitch Lightfoot. I like Dewan Harris. I like Enaruna, but that lineup had to have CB out there. And as soon as they didn't, Baylor goes on a 9-0 run. It gets to 65-51, and it's over. And KU made some more runs. They they looked pretty good, and and Baylor did them favors by not running real offense. And Billis mentioned that. You mentioned that. It's true, but I really do think that there's just a couple fixes that makes this team, yeah. this KU team, like a solid three seed. But at the end of the day, a solid three seed or one of the low twos, um, at the end of the day, this team is going to be relatively matchup dependent in the NCAA tournament. Mm-hmm. And a lot of their, a lot of how far they go will be determined by do they take smart shots? Because at halftime, they had taken 26 shots. Nine of them were threes, and they made five of their threes. And they just didn't look like a team that realized that they should be chucking threes against a team that was – against Baylor, who was physically overwhelming them. Mm-hmm. And some of that's on CB. Some of that is on Bill Self to just recognize that and stop force-feeding the post. But it is what it is. Um, where are you as far as the season outlook for KU? Because I just said it. I think that they're a low two or a high three, and I think that's what they will end up being because – They've gone through kind of the gauntlet of the Big 12 schedule, and they're going to be able to run off some wins here. If they pick up that win at Tennessee or at least play it close, that's something that would be huge for their resume. But where do you see the next month and a half shaping out? So it's hard because they're a little bit in unguarded territory with the back-to-back conference losses for the first time in eight years. And the conference, it's tough. They've got to see Texas and Austin still. They'll host Baylor. They'll host Texas Tech. Them being the win over Texas Tech in Lubbock early on is pretty significant for where they end up finishing up in the Big Ten, which I would project would be they'll finish third. I don't say that with a high degree of confidence because Texas Tech is surging right now. But with that said, and Oklahoma State is not going to be even – enough I don't think throughout the course of the year to uh challenge for that top three or four in the Big Ten but or the Big 12 I should say um but they're gonna get some teams and that's gonna be the other thing Baylor is heading to Gallagher Iba this weekend so I mean if there's you're looking at the places where Baylor could slip up that feels like it might be one of them coming off the heels of the Kansas game and the Texas Tech game over the course of the last week Talking about Kansas, though, I think, you know, Bill Self has to make some adjustments. They're going to have to change some things. Um, And those changes will – this is a cop-out, but, I mean, we'll have to wait and see what those changes are before we can accurately determine what Kansas is going to be. I think if Lightfoot plays and McCormick doesn't, I think they probably only lose two games the rest of the year. But I don't think that's what they're going to do. and by virtue of that, I, I bet they cl- probably come closer to losing three or four. 
Yeah, I, I honestly think that the way that Tennessee plays and the way that that game will probably just be like a relative rock fight and who makes threes is most likely to determine things. I think that KU's three-point shooting can probably win them that game. I think they'll probably be. It is in the Tommy Bowl, though. Yeah, I get that. Um, They get Texas Tech at home. They get Baylor on senior night. And I think that they've won on senior night 31 straight games or something like that. So I could see them beating Baylor at home. But let's talk about Baylor. Um, (laughs) When I said said five-ish, four, five or a little bit below percent chance that they go undefeated through big 12 play um, slash the big 12 SEC challenge, which they get Auburn. Who's not very good here. I will read you their upcoming schedule. I want you to a predict their first loss and B tell me how many, how many games you think they win the conference by. So at Oklahoma state is their next game. Then Kansas state at home, Auburn at home. I think they're the losses. Do I just say, whoa, 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 stop when I think that's the I'm going to read you the schedule and I want, yeah, yeah, just okay. tell me when you think they lose their first game and then tell I'm me. I'm really tempted to say it's this weekend. You think it's Oklahoma State? I don't think so. I don't think so, right? Because again, it's Baylor just has so many answers. Yeah. Like yeah. Jared Butler is score seven in Lubbock and it's not a problem. Because they've got just so many other ways to play and so many other guys to beat you offensively. And their defense is going to carry over game after game because they're veteran guys and it's really good defense. But I also could see if, like, Kate Cunningham is able to, you know, dunk on Mark Vidal a couple times and win those fights at the rim and they get enough three-point shooting like they did against Kansas. Yeah, I mean, Gallagher-Iba gets teams. I feel like they could. I'm not going to pick it. I give it, like, a 20% chance, though. Okay, then I'll read you the schedule, and I want you to tell me. Yeah, sure. Sorry. What is the what are the losable, or the most likely game you think they'll lose at Oklahoma State, home against Kansas State, home against Auburn in the Big Twelve SEC Challenge. Yeah. At Texas, TCU, at Oklahoma. Oh, I mean Texas, 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 Texas. Is I that mean, you have? So is that when you think they lose first? If I had to pick one, yeah, that's that's the second best team in the conference on the road. That feels like the logical choice. I think that Baylor does enough that, man, I just think that they're the best team in the country. They mirror them too because Texas is built the same way where they've got like four guards that you really trust that can all just go and get 25 or 30. Um, and the bigs are similarly built too because you got – I mean, Kai Jones has – uh, a little bit more three-point shooting than Shamwa Shashua, but uh, you got that that longer, rangier, more athletic big, and uh, Kai Jones, or not Kai Jones, uh, Jericho Sims and Mark Vidal are somewhat similar. I mean, the, the only approximation that Baylor doesn't, there's Baylor doesn't have a Greg Brown, which I think Greg Brown would give them a lot of problems. So yeah, I'll take Texas. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm the same guy who picked Texas Tech to win this past weekend in Lubbock, so I understand why you'd pick Texas. But that feels like an ultimate, like, Shaka Smart versus Scott Drew, who bucks the narrative and, like, proves that their team is not going to fold. 
game. Um, after that, they go to they have home against TCU at Oklahoma, Texas Tech. Then they do they have to make up a, a game against West Virginia. So they go at West Virginia, West Virginia that at home, me at all. and then Oklahoma State at home, Iowa State at home at Kansas. I honestly think that the only two games that are like alert like games i'd be alert for are at texas and at kansas and everything else i'm i would be like i would be shocked if baylor loses any game that's not at texas or at kansas yeah i mean texas tech has shown the ability to go into a place like texas and beat a team of that caliber already so i'd say that the the return trip to waco could be a little bit hairy but not on the same tier as two that you just mentioned yeah it it will be interesting. I, I think that um, if you look at adjusted efficiency measures, and I just do that for historically speaking, because you've mentioned how highly you think of Gonzaga in terms of the all-time uh, metrics and such and just comparisons. They Both of these teams, adjusted efficiency marks are above 30, which if you're not familiar with Ken Palm, anything above 30 is like crazy elite. Um, they compare favorably to some of the national championship teams, both Gonzaga and Baylor. And so I think we have a pretty clear tier. Um, Baylor beat a blue blood in Kansas, and we'd mentioned that we were going to talk yeah, about blue I do, do want to say one thing about Baylor, though, really quickly yeah. before we move on. I, to round out the turtle point, because I think it's necessary whenever I make an analogy like that and just don't explain it. Um, Baylor relies extremely heavily on a no-middle defense. It reminds me a lot of Tony Bennett early on at Virginia when Virginia was really establishing themselves as a power, but before they had broken through as a team, that's identity was hung on one kind of defense. We're going to be a patty something else, right? And we're going to be really good at it. Baylor is the same way with this no-middle defense where you can't penetrate. That said, last year we saw Bill Self break the code with side pick and roll that they just hit over and over and over again in Waco as um, Yudoka Azubuki caught lob after lob and made his case for National Player of the Year, right? Um, and, and Kansas didn't have the ability because of David McCormick to do that this year. They still were able to get the ball to the corners, drive baseline, and that's how you attack that. Get some dunks, get some buckets late. They adjusted. I do think if Baylor doesn't vary their approach just a little bit to keep uh, opposing teams and opposing offenses honest, they could run into some problems because there is a formula to beat that no middle, and that is to work the ball to the perimeter, outflank the defense, get baseline, and go dunk, right? And when the defense overcollapses on that, kick for threes. And I think Baylor could get got because of that. They need to play different kinds of defenses, I think, about 20% of the time. And then that no middle is so elite that you're going to get away with it a lot of the time. I just think that they probably need to be able to be a little bit more versatile than I've seen so far. That's a fair criticism. My counter argument to that would be I don't think that there's a Yudoka Azubuki in college basketball this year, and I don't think that any of the teams that have – that pose a legitimate threat of beating Baylor besides maybe Texas. Uh, and that would be asking a hell of a lot from Jericho Sims um, on, in terms of lob threats. I don't think anybody else has what it takes to exploit that. that yeah. I mean, maybe not. 
there's still ways to attack that defense, though, but even without that side pick and roll action. I just think anytime a team is only one thing, that sets them up for failure. That's true. That is true. Um, so, yes, we have Gonzaga, we have Baylor, we have two elite teams. We know that. We also have some struggling blue bloods. I texted you tonight, and I said that the funniest thing about this all is that people are saying down year for Kansas relative to Bill self standards probably will be a down year because a three seed would be um, rare, I would say. Um, but the funniest thing of all of this is as we saw with the AP poll this week, and as we saw with uh, the heat check poll, which doesn't necessarily have the longest history, um, but it is the first time I think that Duke, Kentucky and North Carolina have not been ranked in it. It's the first time since 1961 that Duke, North Carolina, and Kentucky, December of 1961, John Calipari was two years old, that none of those three teams have been ranked in an AP poll. It's been that long. So I, again, go a little choose your own adventure. Which of the three blue bloods would you like to talk about? Do you want to go with the worst one first, the quote-unquote best of the worst? Um, and Which is Duke. Yeah, which is probably Duke. Right. Okay, cool. Because I still think Duke can win the ACC, and I still think Duke might be the best team in the ACC. I don't I don't agree with that. So you don't think that if Wendell Moore were to figure it out midseason, or if Roach were able to play at the level he's played at the last couple of games a little bit more consistently, or if Jalen Johnson can be maybe what we thought he was early in the year to go along with what they've gotten out of Matthew Hurt, they couldn't win it down ACC. I think you just listed a lot of things that are unlikely to happen. Maybe, but I also think that if one of those things does happen, Duke's right there. Whereas it, I think that finding a solution for the other team seems a lot more impossible for UNC and for uh, Kentucky. I think Duke's going to make the tournament. I think Duke's pretty good. Um, you know, the Illinois loss, and the Michigan State loss look a lot worse than they did when they happened. That said, they've got a really tough game. Potentially, we don't know how good Pitt is. We don't know how not good Pitt is. Um, they beat Northwestern for what that's worth. I don't know if that's much. They, uh, they, they had to go play the, the come sit with me crew up in Pittsburgh tomorrow and I think that'll be a good gauge of exactly what kind of peril Duke is in because if they don't win that one yeah let's let's have a discussion about Duke not making the field I I can't believe that I mean the weirdest this has been an odd year that it doesn't take much to say that but Kentucky being sub 500 by a pretty wide margin I I really think North Carolina is not ranked they're not far away from being ranked, I would say, and they could get there with a couple wins over certain teams in the ACC. So I, I know that they're – what? Do you think they're actually good, though? North Carolina? Yeah. I think they are one of the, like, least threatening um, – at the moment, least threatening, but I could see if they got things right why you wouldn't want to play them, like eight or nine seeds in the NCAA tournament. But they're in this conversation solely because they're unranked and them being unranked coupled with Kentucky and Duke being unranked is kind of historically unprecedented. Yeah. With sure. that being said, here's the thing with Duke. 
you said you think that they can win the league. You also said you think they can miss the tournament. That's wild for an ACC team. I completely disagree. I think that North. I think that. I think that Virginia is more likely to win the league and is better than Duke. I think Florida State is more likely to win the league and is better than Duke. Um, and I think that the the biggest indicator you said you're not sure how good Pitt is and what they'll give Duke tomorrow night. We saw Duke against bad ACC teams. They struggled against and kept Wake Forest in the game. Um, and and that's the indicator to me that they're not the same as they have been. Obviously, Jalen Johnson has been out with a couple injuries. But the thing that I said preseason about Matthew Hurt being the best player on Duke and that being a bad sign for them is true. And it's not the same level of talent. Obviously, they have depth in terms of ESPN 100 recruits and top-ranked recruiting guys but just like North Carolina I think Duke and North Carolina are in the same boat in terms of having lots of talent and having lots of talent that needs multiple years in college basketball to be very good um it's odd but I do think there's something to be said about coach K and like when he was saying and questioning whether the season should be played or not early in the season once they got beat mm-hmm in that like he does know his team is just not maybe like not worth fighting for, you know? Whoa. Really? Yeah. Like it's, they, I mean. Like just to hear it out, the concept not worth fighting for out loud is pretty harrowing. I I, I think you may be right. It's just like, whoa. Yeah, like how far off base am I for that? And, and well, I, understand, I, mean, I understand as much as anybody how like covering covering a program in Arizona State that has had struggles in football to play games, struggles in basketball to play games. Yeah, they've had the worst COVID games. athletic department in the country. Yeah, the, the most COVID. Yeah, the most COVID impacted athletic department in the country. I I would agree with that in terms of like the effect it has had in the on on court and on field performance completely agree i understand what duke's like issues are it doesn't make them any more like crazy or any less crazy and i don't love watching virginia play basketball because i know how frustrating it is to watch kihei clark and and company walk the ball up the court and do all that but then they do stuff like they did against clemson who even clemson i think can give Duke games. And I, I just don't think that Duke is going to overwhelm people in the ACC th- this year like they normally do, where normally they beat they beat and they drub on the bottom of the league and win by 20-plus and such. And the only teams doing that in ACC play right now is Virginia and Florida State. And Florida State looked mighty impressive tonight against Louisville, and I'm well back on that bandwagon. See, I, I don't know how much of that is fueled by like a false inflation of how good Louisville is. We love Carleek and my love for Carleek, and I just don't know. Um, but I, I just I look at North Carolina, it's not exactly a functional basketball team, right? It's like five centers and love and leaky black, who's somewhere between a guard and a center because he plays like a big, but he is a guard. And I don't know. Um, it just does not look very functional. And I mean, I said, me, 
and this is all appreciation and love for Roy Williams, right? Because he is one of the modern legends of the game. And you don't want to throw this stuff around lightly, but I think it might be time after back-to-back years to, you know, examine exactly where you're at as a program and where he's at as a coach. And if your trajectories are on the right path, might be a good time to go swoop, swoop up Chris Beard while you still can, um, because I, he may be off to the NBA um, or a better job here fairly soon. Um, with that on the table, I've talked about North Carolina. I've talked about Duke. Let me talk about Kentucky. It is egregious that Dante Allen is not playing more. Um, Kentucky has a formula in which they can win games. They can be, they're not going to win a national title this year. That's not happening. But they could be competitive in the SEC if they abandoned some of the one-and-done politicking. And the fact that John Calipari has not – and I, I think what he does is really, really a noble thing. And, you know, he's not all about winning championships. It's about getting his guys into the best possible situations. He can, and I understand that, and I think it is a good thing. All this comes to conclude, though, that he is making choices that are directly, I think, negatively impacting Kentucky's chances of winning games right now. And that's the kind of stuff that'll get you fired. Um, I don't think it's going to happen this year, but he's certainly not helping himself with the demeanor that he's carrying himself with. And it's a little, I mean, the state of things is a little bit troubling. I think Kentucky will probably finish about 500 in SEC play because bottom of the SEC is really bad, but man, dude, it's just frustrating because you look at Kentucky and you, you see the answer right there and they're just not turning to it. Yeah. And Kyle Tucker who covers uh, or, or writes about Kentucky frequently for the athletic um, is becoming almost a must read on the weekly basis, just because at this point he's just eviscerating John Calipari. And I would, Highly recommend recommend that you read um, his piece this past weekend after they lost to Auburn. But one of the glaring quotes, because you mentioned it, Calipari, not only is he making decisions that are just directly, directly about getting guys to the NBA rather than winning the actual college games, he's oddly like losing the press conference. And he's always been a guy who has said the right thing and won the won the media over yeah, and, for sure. and on Saturday when he was asked about not playing Allen and playing BJ Boston over him, he said, quote, I want to win every game we coach, but the other side of it is I'm not trying to take anyone's heart away. And that's like it. Why are we babying guys? Why are we? You, yeah, can't, you, can't say that, you can't say that Kentucky's not for everyone and then do that just because you yeah. want to slide BJ Boston somewhere into the back of the back half of the lottery next, next May. And, and that's what this yeah. is. This, the thing with Kentucky is they are 270th in turnover percentage, 290th in effective field goal percentage, 289th in three point percentage and 297th in points per possession in half court offense. They're a bad offensive team. Dante Allen makes them somewhat better. You know what I mean? And can shoot at least and he doesn't turn it over yeah so none of it makes sense and if i was a kentucky fan i'd be livid so what i was what i was looking up um 
this week and I or earlier this afternoon and I texted you, I found gold. I want your thoughts on this list because I I stumbled upon quite possibly the greatest list ever. And it's fan-sided oh. fan-sided released a list of the 10 most likely coaches to replace Calipari. Are you ready cool. for this list? Yeah. Okay. Number, number 10. <laughs> Richard Patino. What? No. No. <laughs> no. Just just wait. We're <laughs> we were talking about him getting fired from Minnesota before the year. What? I Richard Patino, number 10. Number nine. If you want if you want to talk about got a, a, a change in branding, uh going from John Calipari to number nine, who is Greg Gard. No, what's what yeah. is happening? <laughs> that's that's number nine on the list. Number eight would probably <laughs> number eight on this list would hold on, hold on. Can you imagine? The youngest guy on a Kentucky team being 22. <laughs> People would lose their mind in that state. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. <laughs> if okay, and if you if if you want to see if you just want to root for the world to burn, uh, and specifically the state of Kentucky to burn, number eight, Chris Mack. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it gets, it, trust me, it, the list gets better. Number seven is Chris no Holman. No uh, Bryce Drew. Number seven is Chris Holman, the head coach of Ohio State. That's a good, that would be a good heart. Number six is Nate Oates, who just handed John yeah, Calvary. Yeah. Can recruit. Yeah. Number yeah. five, I don't agree with, but Mike Young, the head coach of Virginia Tech. No. no yeah. Definitely not. Not done enough yet. Number four. I don't know if you would endorse this. You endorsed his team, Brad Brown, uh, Brad Brownell, uh, Clemson head coach. Yeah, no. Again, the pedigree is just—I don't think it's there. Okay, and then the top three. Oh my God! Let me—I will just let you know. I cackled. I cackled when I read this top three today. Oh my God! Okay. Can you guess? I mean, Chris Beard's got to be one of the top three. Number three is Shaka Smart. Okay, I can see it. After this year, the way this year is going, I can see it. Number two is Chris Beard. Okay, yeah, and that should be the top of any quote-unquote blue blood. That should be their top guy. And number one... Wait, can I guess? Yes. Leonard Hamilton. No. That just makes too much sense, wouldn't it? Um, hmm. If this happened... I, and honestly, the first sentence in their brain. Oh, it's not Scott Drew, is it? It's Scott Drew. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a program builder. That's not what Kentucky is. They, they, the, the first sentence in the Scott Drew at number one was, we aren't sure if he would actually leave Baylor, which <laughs> is a wild statement. The fact that we're at a point where someone would possibly. I choked on my water. Try not to spit all over my computer. But yeah, that's where we're at. So that was a, that was a list. Was it as good as I for you as I thought it was? I'm surprised Rick Barnes didn't make that list, but okay. Yeah. So that's the way Billy that Donovan. What? Billy Donovan may say to hell with it in Chicago. I feel like that would work. And it wasn't just like a 
10 guys who could replace, like, it wasn't just like a 10 guys we'd want to see or anything. It was most likely to. And <laughs> also, we're not there yet. Oh, not at all. It has been bad once in the last, like, decade. Yeah. But that's. I know that the New Orleans Noel year, but that was different because Kentucky was trending towards being like a top 10 team and then New Orleans towards ACL. And that team was fresh off a national championship. Also that. Yeah, no, we're just not there yet. But uh, but what he's doing a very good job helping himself. We I wanted to talk about what constitutes a blue blood because it, is it just Kansas, Kentucky, Duke, and North Carolina? Those are the blue bloods, the teams that wear literally wear blue and have the history. And then I don't know what you do with UCLA. UCLA is a blue blood. Is Indiana a blue blood? I know some people who would definitely not be happy to hear that they're probably not, but like, whoa, dude. Okay. Modern- so what is the criteria then, because if we're talking about historical significance, Indiana has to be there. Yeah, they are. About like being the elite programs year in, year out today, Michigan State's a blue blood. So is Illinois, but they don't get mentioned in those circles. UConn's won four of the last 20 national titles. They're I not- think. I think you have to have won multiple national championships. So is UConn, is UConn a blue blood? That one's weird because they've like fluked. They've like fluked their way in, in the four. They've won a fifth. Two of them. Last twenty national titles. Twenty eleven and twenty fourteen are two of the like. Have like they won most national championships over the last twenty years. Yeah. And, and when they win their fifth in 21 this year, it's going to be crazy. I'll concede if they win. <laughs> it's tough because and, – and I think that you almost get like a bonus if you're them based on the fact that the women's program is that elite, that like just the, the basketball program in general matters that much on both sides. But – I think Villanova is trending toward it. I texted you and when you said you wanted to debate this and I said, I think that, I think that Villanova at this point is, and they weren't as bad at the start of Jay Wright's tenure as like Duke was under Cal or under. They were not good. Yeah. But I think that Villanova is almost approaching like where, Duke was in the nineties. Like they're having that time where it they're establishing that they're a blue blood. And then we'll see where the next 20, 20 years goes. But at some point, I, I guess that the blue bloods just comes down to like who has been there from relatively the start. And you have to almost like, I don't know. It's such a weird thing. It's such a weird. I, I think it's literally a made-up thing, and I think the quote-unquote blue bud. I, I think it really just—it's okay to just say North Carolina, Kansas, Kentucky, and Duke are the blue bloods, and it really has no criteria about how great your program is because those aren't the best programs in the country anymore. They just aren't year in year out. The gold standard is Villanova. Mm. Yes. But the amount of times that those teams have consistently – like the reason we're talking about them not being in the AP poll is because they're always in it. And those gyms are always sold out. It doesn't – it does not matter. What I get it. So usually Assembly Hall is pretty full. Yeah, I know. 
it just seems like a moving target. That's all I'm saying. It Nobody knows what a blue blood is. Is it the teams that literally wear blue? I'm not sure. Somewhat, yes. Okay. So, so okay. we cleared that up. Let's talk about. Let's talk about. It's orange. Let's talk about your favorite mm. fringe blue blood program, and the one that you claim is going to win the fifth national title in the last. Oh, okay. We're going to do this. We're going to do twenty. Let's get to week two of pros and cons. This is going to be short and fast, okay? Con, you lost to St. John's. Pro, did it without James Booknight. Excused. UConn still winning the national championship. Move on. You're a glass half full guy. Yep. You're also a yep. bad news first guy. Yeah, I mean, it would have been like a really weird setup if I said, pro, you don't have James Booknight. Con, you lost. <laughs> Wouldn't have made a lot of sense. What are your thoughts on um, – are you going to tell people where you had them ranked in your heat check pool this week? Because I think that's noteworthy. Yeah. I, I ranked them seventh, correct? You did. You ranked them at seven. And the criteria is they were winning without James Booknight, but it doesn't hurt them that they lost without James Booknight. I can't lose. If I you want to talk about, if you want to talk about and, moving and- targets – if you want to talk about moving targets moving the goal yes. that's what i you am do. moving the targets uconn is my national champion just like dayton was my national champion last year i made the choice and until i'm proven incorrect uconn is the best team in the country i can't wait for march insert weird video of dan hurley awkwardly saying let's go huskies all right, I'm going to use that as our uh, as our sequitur to let's talk about another thing that's uh, relatively close to your heart. Um, Not my heart, maybe my home. Yes. Okay. Wrong age. Knoxville fire again. <laughs> okay, Tennessee's doing another coaching search. Jeremy Pruitt he gets fired with cause, so they're not paying his buyout. Yeah, you're just gonna laugh about this. Here's here's he doesn't <laughs> They can't get out of their own way. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I feel so bad for them. Oh, you're at the point of sadness. Well, all the people like Dennis Dodd can go away. Because Dennis Dodd actively I grew up a Vanderbilt fan. I grew up adamantly despising Tennessee. But I also acknowledge this. It is good for college football when Tennessee is good. And that is a fact. Their fan base may be annoying, but when they're apathetic, they're even worse. <laughs> I don't root for the failure of Tennessee, right? I just, I just root for Vanderbilt to beat them. They play when I was growing up, even it's diminished over time, as much as that kind of pains me to say. I mean... Given what happened this year, it is understandable for Tennessee to want to move on. And when I explain exactly why Tennessee practically as an organization, as an athletic department, committed suicide so they could fire Coach Pruitt on campus, they call him Poot, um, with cause so they didn't have to pay a buyout is because they're still paying Jones to be an at Alabama. And I guess he's going to be the Arkansas state head coach now. 
Um, they just got done paying Derek Dooley, right? So for them and, and their war chest, they, there was no way <clears throat> that, that they were going to be able to convince their donors to pay another buyout. And, and that makes sense. So they tattled on themselves self-reported recruiting violations so that they could fire them with cause. And they may get a year probation from the NCAA. They may get a bull ban. I don't think it's going to be that bad. And I think Tennessee would not have self-reported if it was going to be that bad. They just decided it was worth it to maybe sacrifice a year of bull eligibility so they could move on. And that makes sense to me. Um, let's call a spade a spade, though. I mean, Philip Fulmer sabotaged the last athletic director in the last coaching search so he could get his guy in, and he failed miserably. And now he's going to retire, and he should have never gotten involved again in the, in the first place. I love uh, how today he said, recruiting is in a good place in a press conference about how they were illegally recruiting people, which is the most former thing. In the words of Ryan McGee, the most former thing that's ever been formed. That's so, that. So here's the thing. I was <clears throat> hearing that someone was fired with cause brings me to think of two things. Kevin Ollie is one, right? Kevin Ollie is one. Mm-hmm. And the other is David Beatty at KU. And yeah. the reason that that brings it up even more so is that Michael Lyons is the lawyer that's representing Jeremy Pruitt, the same lawyer that represented David Beatty. Here's the quote that Lyons said about Beatty getting fired and KU trying to get him. This keeps happening to me, right? He said, (laughs) he said, I think this should be a lesson for institutions everywhere that this is not the way to do business. If If the ultimate decision is that we're going to fire our coach, fire him, pay him your obligation and move on. Because if you decide to roll out the Kansas game plan, do so at your peril. You're going to potentially expose yourself in every program that you have, and you're going to potentially make yourself worse off than had you simply honored your commitment. That's the lesson we learned here. Right. So it's super threatening words. And maybe just maybe Tennessee feels like they have less to lose than KU does in in terms of like, banners and such related to their basketball program but michael lyons is talking big game he should what what tennessee did was wrong and dishonest and just bad i mean fire him that's fine you agreed to terms with this man you agreed to a contract and if i were a coach i wouldn't want to go there if soon as it isn't going our way if the university is going to turn on me and do this i mean we could jerry Pruitt could get a call and be out of work for years because of this and for what i would understand and anticipate to be something that the university condoned if not encouraged with him illegally recruiting because that's every big sdc school because things were going well and then they weren't and then he got fired. And I th- again, I feel bad for the fans because the people running this program are running it into the ground. And I don't know if it can recover. I don't. I hope it can. Yeah. I, but uh, like Luke Fickle should not take this job. He should not want to take this job. 
he can do better. You know what the, the, the closest thing the Tennessee job feels like to me is, and it almost feels, I don't know if this is the right comparison, but it almost feels like Indiana basketball with Kelvin Sampson in that what was going on probably isn't right, but also how many other people are going to get in trouble for it? And is it really worth, like, is it really worth it to throw the guy under the bus and mess things up? Um, And maybe that's a wrong comparison, but certainly it feels like both programs in terms of Tennessee and Indiana basketball, Tennessee football and Indiana basketball are like very important to the sport and the sport is better when they're good, but they're just struggling. So do you want to talk about candidates for the job or do you want to talk about the little Nick Saban angle to this? I didn't know there was a Nick Saban angle to this. Another one of his assistants failed in the SEC. Yeah, we can just talk. Yeah, that was what it was going to be because there was a tweet from Justin Ferguson who covers Auburn for the Athletic. He said, seven former Saban assistants have been hired as SEC head coaches. Four Four have been fired, Derek Dooley, Jim McElwain, Jeremy Pruitt, Will Muschamp twice. And, and Derek Dooley doesn't really count. Okay. Okay. But it's one of those things where if he was successful, Saban would get credit. If he yeah. wasn't. Sure. sure. The three who haven't, Ferguson tweeted, two offensive guys who had, had who had extensive time away from him. So that's Jimbo Fisher and Lane Kiffin. And then Kirby Smart. And Kirby Smart, I would say, is pretty close to like – and many people are expecting Georgia. I mean, I guess they're always top five in the preseason poll, but people are saying that. Yeah, this, people think this is Georgia's year. Uh, the last thing in the tweet was all of those guys are winless against Saban. Yeah. So people don't, uh, people don't beat Saban. Um, the only, I mean, this is the whole angle about Hugh Freeze was, or even Gus Malzahn for Tennessee. As a, a, if we want to transition into candidates, is that you look around the SEC and the only like active head coach that's beaten Nick Saban. I mean, like, think about this for a second, right? Like, it just is not something that really exists in the conference at the moment. The only guy is Ed Orgeron, and it. it took a all-time team to do that. That's why bringing in a guy like Hugh Freeze, who beat Saban twice, is somewhat appealing. Um, you know, Gus Malzahn, who beat Saban multiple times. And, I mean, you, what would Tennessee give to be what Auburn was under Malzahn right now? A lot. A lot. <laughs> um, so, I mean... Those are two people who come to mind. I've seen Gary Patterson's name thrown around. I, it was thrown around the last time. Um, I think TCU's probably in a little bit of a worse place than they were the last time this was discussed. Chadwell was the dude who I thought of immediately. Pretty unique and cutting-edge offense down there at Coastal Carolina. Grew up a Tennessee fan. Um, and, you know, if – was confident Fuller was the guy who's going to pull the trigger on the decision because he is going to stay in his role until they find his successor, which who knows what that means. 
He said in a press conference this year, unprompted, that Chatwell reminded him of a young Johnny Majors, which is fairly high praise yeah. um, for Tennessee people. Yeah, um, the second best coach in the history of the program, depending on whether or not you want to say it's former or Majors, I don't know, um, behind General Neyland. So, I mean, that's the guy that seems like he's in their price range and seems like the right hire for me. Um, some people said Bob Stoops. That would be, you know, interesting if they could pull that off. I don't think he would come out of retirement for that. Um, and then, I mean, Luke Fickle's the home run hire. I just don't see a world in which they can convince him that that's the, the buck stops with Tennessee and that's his forever job. I just don't think that's going to happen. So, I mean, some people were like saying that they may get James Franklin. That's not happening. If Tennessee wasn't willing to pay the buyout for Jeremy Pruitt, you think they're going to be willing to pay the $37 million buyout on James Franklin's contract? The answer to that is no, not going to do that. Um, so, I mean, all things considered, it's going to be fascinating to say where they go. I mean, last time there was a coaching search, it was an absolute dumpster fire and it was glorious to watch. And they deposed a incumbent head coach, which I've never seen happen again or before. And I don't think we will see ever happen again. Right. I mean, I would ask you, who do you think makes sense for this? So you touched on a lot of the same candidates that I had written down um, reading Chris Vanini's uh, job profile for Tennessee on the athletic. Mm-hmm. The problem, the problem with Hugh freeze is that he literally got run out of the conference for doing almost the same thing as Pruitt, or at least what Tennessee is claiming Pruitt did. So that would be plus, plus yes. Plus the escorts um, and the hypocrisy of that all would, would be interesting. I had written down, or here's, here's what Vanini had. He had freeze. He had Chadwell, like you mentioned, Gus Malzahn, you said fickle the other ones he had listed and these feel a little more likely um, because Tennessee's not in a great spot right now. Dave Doran of NC state, Dave Clawson of wake forest, Billy Napier, who's the Louisiana Lafayette head coach. Yeah, and I just don't, I thought about Napier doesn't feel big enough. Like, yeah. I think fans would not be content with that. You know what? A big name, a big name that would be interesting um, is a, and a guy that, one at a decent rate but obviously not good enough for the job and that's why he got fired tom herman yeah i just don't think i don't think tom herman's taking that job right now really he would rather wait yeah i do man like i think we're at that point it's toxic gabe yeah i understand i just think if tom herman can get an sec job coming off of i mean think about this Charlie Strong got fired from Texas and got the USF job. That's not Tennessee. I mean, you, you rarely see a guy get fired from a school that's got an 100,000-person stadium and ends up at a place that's got a 100,000-person stadium. Like, it just doesn't happen. That's true. I just – be interesting. I think that the if I'm them, I'm doing whatever I can to get Malzahn or Chadwell. Could you – I don't know how much money they'd have to throw at it, but Mario Cristobal – Seems like an unlikely guy, but a guy that you'd be pretty happy with. I, I just think Chadwell's are dude, honestly. They're going to run a fun offense. It's unique. It's original. Um, it's that triple option spread that I think might kind of be the future of college football. 
Um, yeah, I think that's their guy. It's the most reasonable guy. Uh, if you could get Mel Salling, good. He'll write the ship. You'll be decent for five years. And then you'll figure out what you got to do next then. But uh, huh. the, the, the outside the box hire that I always think of for these bigger jobs, Jeff Fisher. Just be kind of like crazy to pull a, a Gruden and just pull somebody out of retirement. I mean, how much does like seeing Herm be successful? Mac Brown, it, it does impact your thinking a little bit, right? Like as long as – I don't know if Jeff Fisher has the Herm personality or the Mac Brown personality, but he's not like – I mean, he's – I think he's a little more fiery of a guy than the other two are, but maybe not as like – but. I mean, everything I've ever heard and, like, listening to him speak and such, pretty good personality and a guy that I think could recruit. Yeah. I don't know if he's willing to, but. Outlaw, you know. Had success with the – with the, A Tennessee team. Yeah. I always, I always thought of him for the USC job because that's where he played. But, uh, you know, maybe Tennessee's right for him. Who knows? I mean, and, and then you think about uh, if you really want to go the coordinator route again, Tony Elliott from Clemson, who's got an NFL looks as an OC and potentially as a head coach. Um, that could make some modicum of sense, but I, they just tried that and it did not work. It's hard to nail the, the coordinator promotion um, and what get about, that right. What about like an Alex Grinch? It's another idea. I mean, Oklahoma's defense was better, but also it's just different. Like this is the SEC. I don't know. Again, I just come back. I always come back to Chatwell. I, I'm like that guy. He grew up a Tennessee fan. Seems right, especially considering what South Carolina kind of did with Beamer. Um, that would be my first call. I, I mean, I'd call Fickle. I'm anticipating you'd get a no. Then I would call uh, Chatwell. So. Yeah, I think Fickle is going to try to get one Again, more. Where is the big opening that's going to come open here at one of the major schools that makes sense for him? It's USC. I can't see Luke Fickle's hard notes. Like, that just doesn't fit. I guess it's the it would be the Mick Cronin of college football. I mean, literally, it'd be Cincinnati. It would be the same thing. Can you imagine? We... We just we just stumbled upon it. We just stumbled upon it. It's or, or, listen. Oregon's playing pro style football. USC's playing pro style football. ASU's playing pro style football. The Pac-12 is just going to become. The SEC's telling these teams who are scoring sixty points a game. What is happening? The spread. The spread. All of the Chip Kelly stuff has gone to the SEC, and meanwhile, we're going to get punchy in the face football on the west coast even chip kelly is running <laughs> and then cbs is gonna lose sec contracts and they're gonna pick up the pac-12 and we're gonna get that beautiful theme song on saturday afternoons in in, in la county i don't okay, let's move on all right i'm starting the luke fickle to usc bandwagon all right, let's let's close scholarships and sanctions, and then we'll be done. Everything I know is a lie. <laughs> what do you got?
um, sanction the University of Tennessee. What they did was incredibly wrong and should be punished by society. We should say, hey, what you did is not okay. I would agree with that. Yeah, I don't, that's what I, I got. And I, we've talked plenty about it. Um, I want to give recognition to McKinley Wright. Fifth time in his career, he was named Pac-12 Player of the Week. I think Colorado, I had them in the top 10 of my heat check poll this week. I think they're a fringe top 10 team. The metrics all certainly suggest that that is the case. Um, and I don't think people are realizing that. You're even low on them. Like you you had them in the inside of the top 20, but not as big of a believer as I am or as our, our boy Kenneth Pomeroy is. Kenneth. The scholarship. Nate Oates. Yes. Holland Oates through the SEC slate. Undefeated in SEC play. Took down Auburn and Sharif Cooper. Also scholarship. Sharif, I don't know who the scholarship goes to, but they finally did the right thing and Sharif Cooper's getting to play. So I said I, last week, I sanctioned the NCAA for that. Yeah, and I'm, now I'm giving a scholarship to whoever brought that into possibility. I don't know who's responsible for it. Not the NCAA. I don't think it was like Sharif. I don't think it was Auburn or Bruce Pearl. I'm just giving a scholarship. Just, just, it, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just accepting it. All right. Um, another scholarship. This is a pretty literal one. Uh, Chris Olave chose to take his scholarship again for next year. So why? Scholarship to Chris Olave. Jeremy Rucker did too. And I'm like, are we going to see Justin Fields decide to come back? No, he already declared. He did not do that. Yeah, he declared very quickly after. Um, well, well, today was the last day. Today was the last day for underclassmen to declare. So I don't understand how the NCAA, uh, I guess the NFL draft deadline is coming up, but it's also going to be weird because there's no combine this year, which was announced today. Um, and the whole process is going to be so different this year. But, uh, no, I, I was just going to say Ohio State, I mean, starting to look better and better. Um, C.J. Stroud steps in next year, and we'll see what they look like. Um, but getting some key – like, I don't know why Chris Olave came back. I don't – I genuinely don't understand why, unless he's just, like, unfinished business, which uh, that is the only reasonable explanation. And I, and I don't know if that he's business gets finished. I don't know if that business gets finished next year. <laughs> No, the let's finish business thing doesn't work out like Alabama did this year very often. It very much so rarely does, actually. Do you have anything else? I have one sanction, and I think it's one. Sanction away. I think I have one that you can, you and I can unite behind. Okay. We're sanctioning the Alco. Yeah. Okay, cool. That formula is so stupid. So. What? You're just like. Alex explain Hill, it to people explain he it always, he always defends it by backing off and saying hey it's not it's not my opinion it's the numbers you choose bad numbers okay the rpi is a system that's been discredited it doesn't work it doesn't count for anything okay at least like use the net he does he does to be fair but the funny thing okay. is the net was created because the rpi was bad so using the rpi and the net is counterproductive. And for people who don't know what we're, ta we're talking about, our our friend Alex Coyle created the 
Alco formula, which is uses RPI, the net strength of schedule. I genuinely don't know what else it uses. It's not that impressive a thing because he just took a bunch of other people's opinions and put them in a pot together. He just chose the bad statistics so that there would be a relative, so that his his numbers would be different than Ken Palm and Bart Torvik and the Sagarin rankings. And it produces things like Minnesota at number two and Drake at 15. And the only people I can agree with Minnesota at two, if all of their home games count and none of their road games count, that's not the way things work. Yeah. I mean, the strength of schedule things, what gets me, cause he's like, Drake is a, a highly ranked strength of schedule. And I, it's like, how, how do that? Because they won at Kansas state. Congratulations. At, D2 school won at Kansas State. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to do this, somebody rank Winthrop. All I'm saying right now is that the strength of schedule thing, because your team is undefeated, the only team that's in the nation that, that's undefeated and mean anything are Baylor and Gonzaga. And none of the other ones matter. Drake did this two years ago. They didn't make the tournament. Okay, maybe if they still had Liam Robbins, who is the Minnesota center, maybe it it just loves Liam Robbins, the formula. And his residual effect on Drake is the reason they're ranked 15th. But if they still had a player like that, yeah, I could buy it. Not at 15, but maybe a top 25 team. No, they may not even be the best team in their league. No, Loyola Chicago is the best team in the Missouri Valley. Like, I'm not certain of that, but they might be. I mean, they beat you and I by 45 this weekend, 88 to 43. Yeah. And like Drake was supposed to play. You, I'm done. I'm done. No more Alco. Thank you, Ball Horde, for engulfing my man like he stepped fire and hill. I didn't know I was going to do that when I quote tweeted that, but that was tremendous. So thank you. Scholarship to Vol Nation. And I hope that there's there's anything I know, it's that what we've determined from this, from this episode, the Tennessee administration gets a sanction, Tennessee fans get a scholarship. And uh, I hope that Tennessee fans, (laughs) I hope the Vol Army (laughs) hasn't, I don't hope. I know that the Vol Army. They're all horde. They're not an army. (laughs) They will have something to do with this coaching surge. Oh, you better damn believe it, they will. So that's that's where we're at. All right. Another great episode of Heat Check. Thank you all for listening. For uh, Peyton Galher and I'm Gabe Schwartz, like, rate, review, subscribe. We will see you later this week.
paycheck. Everybody gotta know that we next. Doesn't matter if it's Sunday or Monday, you know that we flex. You can never make it more obvious. You checking for the heat, that's cold. That's cold, that's cold. to the top of the top of this. You can never reach these goals. Hop in the booth and we spin the truth. We inspire the youth and we get to the loop. You do what it does and we do what it do. We turn to the max and they got you on mute. Ooh, flow so high, so you know I had to run a bag. Blazes a ball, then we run it like a running back. Gabe Rock Chalk, so you know we have fun with that. Turn you in the so you know hey. ain't no coming back. Now we done with that. He check is that.